Scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11, verse 32, and 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. And good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. And it's good to be with you on today, the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. And uh, as far as our by faith service goes uh, through Hebrews chapter 11, today is the final Old Testament saint that we're going to be looking at, because next week, Jesus comes. This whole series has been about uh, people who point us to and anticipate Jesus coming, and so it makes sense that on the fourth and final week of Advent, we would wrap up our time talking through Old Testament saints, because next week on Christmas Sunday, if you will, we will talk about the one that we have been waiting for, Jesus. But today, this final Sunday of Advent, we're going to be looking at King David. We've talked about Noah and Abraham and Moses so far during Advent, the people that God made a covenant with in the Old Testament. And so today we're concluding that series within a series with King David. As we dive deeper into David's story, we'll have three points. Judges, bad kings, and good kings. And so let's begin with our first point, judges. Have you ever been in a situation where no one was taking charge? 
I can remember being on a mission trip during college where I spent several weeks in another country, and our group got in this bad habit where we wanted to go out to eat dinner somewhere as a group, but no one would decide where to go. It would turn, on, turn into this standoff of politeness. Oh, anywhere is fine with me. Um, well, we haven't been to that Indian place in a while, but if someone doesn't like Indian food, that, we don't have to go there. That's okay. Uh, what does everybody else think? And this, would, this line of reasoning would just repeat over and over, and we'd essentially just stand there as a group and never make any progress toward a decision. We wasted so much time trying to decide where to eat. And so eventually... Um, what one of the other guys on the trip started doing was when we would gather, he would very quickly announce, we're going to eat dinner at this restaurant. And then he would just start walking to that restaurant. And, uh, you know, if you were, you would either follow him to that restaurant or you start making progress toward a new decision. And, uh, you know, at first it seemed kind of odd that he would do this, uh, that he would just decide for the group. But we came to realize that he was actually serving us in a way. We needed someone like him to lead our dinner decision. When he would announce where he was going, we would either go there, we'd follow him, or it would spur someone to raise a valid objection to eating at that restaurant, or someone might say, I'll lead a second group to a different restaurant. And uh, once he started taking charge, we never stood around forever in that standoff, standoff of politeness ever again. We stopped wasting time. We started eating dinner. We were no longer aimless. We had a leader. When our Hebrews passage, the author mentions several names before King David. He mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And these four were judges of Israel from the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, Between the time when Joshua led the people into the promised land and the anointing of Israel's first king, Israel was ruled by judges. But what characterized the period of judges was aimlessness. And I'm not talking about, you know, the relatively innocuous decision, like where a group should eat dinner, but a a moral and spiritual aimlessness, which, of course, is the most dangerous form of aimlessness. Our verse for the reading of the law of God touched on this, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and so everyone just did whatever they thought was right. And of course, the implication of that verse is that what they did was right in their eyes as a contrast to what was right in God's eyes. And this situation arose because they had no king. They had no strong leadership. Except there actually was a king in Israel. It was God himself, Yahweh, the covenant Lord. But the people didn't live as if he were their true king. And so what happens, or what would happen, is the people would get into this cycle where Israel as a nation would forsake Yahweh, serve false gods, do what was right in their own eyes, what was wrong in God's eyes. And so then God would give Israel over to be plundered and invaded by foreign nations. And then suddenly the people would remember, oh, there's a God, and they would cry out to him and ask for forgiveness for their sins and for salvation. And so then God would respond and raise up a judge who would help them defeat the invading nation. You know, now when we hear that term judge, we might think courtrooms and rendering verdicts, but, you know, a judge at the time of Israel's history is less like a courtroom judge. They're more like 
a crisis manager. And so when I say judge, think crisis manager. And so God would raise up a judge for just a short period of time to manage one specific crisis. The judge would lead and save Israel from the foreign invader, but then once trouble passed, the judge would bow out and retire. And then the cycle would repeat itself again. The people would forsake Yahweh. God would give them up to a foreign invader. Then the people would cry out and repent. God would raise up a judge who would hold off the invader. And then the judge would retire and rinse, repeat, recycle for 200 years. And sure, the judges mentioned in Hebrews 11 do show varying levels of faith sometimes in some specific circumstances. That's why they're mentioned in the chapter. But ultimately, the message of the book of Judges is that the people of Israel needed more than just a judge. They needed more than a crisis manager. They needed a king, someone who would rule and reign at all times, someone who could be depended on to defeat their enemies for good, and above all, someone who could give them an aim for what was right in God's eyes. But without recognizing such a king, the people only had judges. And that cycle repeated over and over again. The Israelites could not break out of that cycle. Do you ever feel like you're stuck in a cycle in your relationship with God? Do you feel stuck in a cycle this very morning, like you just keep living the same things over and over again, a sort of Groundhog Day Christianity, confessing and repenting the same old sins each and every Sunday? Or have you ever maybe experienced slowly drifting further and further from God and his people and more and more toward the kingdom of this world? Maybe days, months, years go by since the last time you meditated on scripture, since the last time you fell on your knees to pray, since the last time you worshiped in spirit and in truth. And then a crisis hits. And you come running back to God for the first time in who knows how long. And because he's gracious and merciful and full of steadfast love, he welcomes you home with open arms. And so you promise you won't drift away like that again. Next crisis, you'll be ready because you'll be walking with God. But then the next crisis hits and you realize you've drifted to the exact same distant spot as last time. And the cycle repeats. Have you ever been in a cycle like that? How do you get out of it? How do you break the cycle? Well, Scripture says you need more than a judge. You need more than a crisis manager. You need a king. You need someone to rule and reign and lead in your life every day, not just when a crisis hits, but every single day. And so if you've been stuck in a cycle, the question Scripture forces you to ask yourself is, Have I been treating God like my crisis manager, or is God my king? Do I only run to God when a crisis hits, or are there regular rhythms in my life of drawing near to God day in, day out? Is God my king, or do I only draw near to God in crisis? And look, if crisis does strike, and you realize you've been keeping God at arm's length, by all means, go to him. Go to him then. It's not too late. That's far better than keeping God away. But please know that God is so much more than a crisis manager. You need him to be more than a crisis manager. He's a king, and you need him to be your king. Israel eventually figured out that they needed more than a judge, more than a crisis manager. They needed a king. 
But unfortunately, Israel chose a bad king for bad reasons. It's not just enough to know that you need a king. Which king you bow before and why matters too. And that takes us to our second point, bad kings. Our passage in 1 Samuel 16 begins with the Lord saying to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, Saul was, of course, the first king of Israel. But Saul was a bad king. The people of Israel chose poorly in Saul, and eventually the Lord rejected him. And so how did they get there? If we back up a little bit, like I said before, eventually Israel figured out that they needed more than a judge. They needed a king. And of course, they already had a king in the Lord, in God himself, but they didn't treat him as a king. And eventually it got to the point, and you can read about this in 1 Samuel 8, it got to the point um, when Samuel was a judge over Israel, a judge who interestingly did not retire, but continued into old age. But it comes to a point when the people come to Samuel and essentially say, look, Samuel, you're getting kind of old. You're going to die soon. So will you appoint a king for us to lead us? Can you appoint for us, Samuel, a king just like all the nations have? A king like all the other nations have. Now, when they say this, it displeases Samuel, because Israel had a king already. The Lord was their king, but the people of Israel were starting to get a little self-conscious. They compared themselves to other nations, to uh, other nations that had human kings, and they said to themselves, hey, we should have a king too. We should have a king just like that nation and that nation. But of course, God didn't enter into a special covenant relationship with Israel so that they could become just like the nations. He entered into a special covenant relationship with Israel so that they could be different than the nations, holy and set apart, a light to the nations, a light that led the other nations to the true God, not a nation just like all the rest. And Samuel knows all this, and so when they ask him for a king just like the nations have, he's displeased. So Samuel prays to the Lord, but the Lord tells him, listen to what the people are saying to you. It's not you that they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. And so give them a king just like they're asking for. They have rejected me as their king. And so eventually Samuel anoints a man named Saul to be their king. And he begins his reign with a lot of promise. You know, Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. He's a picture-perfect image of a king. He's a head taller than everyone else. Everyone sees Saul in Israel and is satisfied. They're saying, yes, this is just the man we've been hoping for. Long live King Saul. And at the beginning of Saul's reign, he does lead Israel to some victories and battles. He does okay at the start. But Saul while on the outside, looking very good, Saul on the inside has deep, deep character flaws. He's dishonest. He doesn't have integrity. He's pride. He can't admit his mistakes. And all of this leads to the inevitable. Saul disqualifies himself as Israel's king by completely disobeying God's commands. Before a big battle with the Philistines, Saul is waiting for Samuel to show up and make a burnt offering and a fellowship offering. Because Samuel is the one that God has appointed to make such offerings. Samuel has priestly authority. Saul doesn't. But Samuel's running a bit late. And Saul sees the 
uh, Philistines gathering, and he eventually gets antsy and says, you know what? Samuel's not here yet. I'm just going to make these offerings myself. Then we can get to winning this battle. Big mistake. And soon after, Samuel shows up and confronts Saul. What have you done, Saul? Saul says, well, I saw the Philistines assembling, and I thought, I need to seek the Lord's favor. And so I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. What Saul should have said was, you're right, Samuel. I've sinned, and I'm sorry, Lord. But instead, he attempts to justify his sinful actions by spiritualizing them. I was seeking the Lord's favor, Samuel. Never a good move to use God to justify disobeying God. That breaks the third commandment, right? Using the Lord's name in vain. So Samuel tells Saul, you've done a foolish thing. You have not committed You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. And so Saul is out and someone else is in. And of course, that someone, the man after God's own heart, is David. And these two kings, Saul and David, become a sort of archetype for the two different types of Israel's kings. Saul represents the bad king, and David represents the good king. Bad kings have tremendous character flaws, the most significant of which is that they don't genuinely seek the Lord. Good kings, while imperfect, do what is right often and do seek the Lord. And when they sin, they repent, as we see with David. But before we get to David, let's pause for a moment and ask, what can we learn here from Saul's story and from Israel's choice of Saul? I mean, this is particularly relevant for us as we're in a season of searching for a pastor. And, you know, a pastor is not a king, but there are obvious parallels that can be drawn between kings in Scripture and church leadership, the leaders of God's people, and not just the top spot of leadership, but all forms and positions of leadership in the church. And so what can we learn from Saul and Israel's choice in Saul? Well, one, we're probably a little bit like Israel sometimes. We naturally look at what's superficial. Uh, And second, God is not like us. He looks at what's in a person's heart. And so we as God's people have to work to look less and less at what's superficial and more and more at what's in a person's heart. When Samuel in our passage is meeting with Jesse's sons, even he thinks that it's going to be obvious who the next king will be based on the son's appearance or height. And the Lord has to tell Samuel, no, not that son. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And so we're also tempted to look at outward appearance. You know, we live in a country and in a metropolitan area that values what you can see. Does the person look good? Are they articulate? Are they charismatic? Do they have skills? Do they have talents? Do they get results? And some of those things matter, obviously. They're not irrelevant, but they pale in comparison to character, to integrity, to humility, So do you believe that, that character is more important than results? When you're evaluating a current leader or a potential leader, do you you get stuck on outward appearance things, the, the things you can see? Or do you work to also discern what's in a person's 
heart? You know, is this the type of person who would cheat on their spouse? Is this the type of person who would lie to achieve a desirable outcome? Would this person apologize and repent if they did something wrong? Would this person endure mistreatment in order to do what's right before God? So will we look at outward appearance only, or will we also look at the heart? The Lord looks at the heart because character matters. Integrity matters. Humility matters. Above all else, really, the most talented and gifted and competent leader who lacks character, who lacks integrity, who lacks pride, or who is prideful, will be a bad leader. The hearts of your leaders matter above all else. You know, when I was working as a campus ministry staff with college students, uh, our student leadership would turn over very quickly. You know, students graduate every four years normally, and so each year our juniors and seniors needed to be identifying freshmen and sophomores that they thought could be future leaders in the ministry. And so what we would tell them when they were, you know, evaluating other students or asking who could be a future leader, what we, what we would tell them is that you need to look for students who are fat. Not talking about weight. Fat was an acronym. Faithful, available, teachable. You needed to find people who were faithful, available, and teachable. That's what we were looking for in future leaders. And so first, faithful. Were they faithful to God? Would they seek to keep his word? Was it clear that the gospel was operative in their life? Additionally, were they faithful to other people? Did they keep their word to other people? Was their yes, yes, and their no, no? Could you depend on them to do what they said they would do? Were they faithful? Second, available. Did they have the time? Did they show up? Were they present? And this would be a tough one sometimes because we would have students who were awesome. They were faithful. They were teachable. They were outgoing and talented, but they just didn't have the time. They were involved in too many other things. The campus ministry was one of many things that they did, but it was relatively low on their priority list. You know, they they missed Bible study a lot. They didn't make that many weekly meetings. They'd cancel our one-on-ones. You couldn't count on them to be there. Didn't mean that they were a bad person. Didn't mean that they weren't a good Christian. It just meant they wouldn't be a good leader in our particular ministry because they were not available. Leaders need to be faithful. They also need to be available. And then finally, they needed to be teachable. Essentially, this is humility. Was this person willing to admit that they still had things to learn? They didn't know everything. They weren't God. They knew that they were finite, that they were faltering, that they were fragile creatures who were always in process, continually learning, growing, and being sanctified. They hadn't arrived yet. Were they teachable? Bad kings, bad leaders are unfaithful, unavailable, unteachable. Good kings, good leaders are faithful, available, teachable. You you could be the most talented, skilled, competent person in the world, but if you're not faithful, if you're not available, if you're not teachable, we can't work with you. And on the other hand, you could be of pretty meager talents, skills, and competencies. But if you're faithful, if you're available, if you're teachable, then we can work with that. So obviously this is relevant as you look for a leader? Do you look at the outward appearance of the heart, at talents, or at the, do you look at the outward appearance or at the heart? Do you look at talents, skills, and competencies, or whether a person is faithful, available, and teachable? But it's also relevant in determining if you're qualified to be a leader. Are you faithful? Are you available? Are you teachable? You know, take stock 
of your own life? Are you faithful, available, teachable? Bad leaders are unfaithful, unfaithful, unavailable, unteachable. Good leaders are faithful, available, and teachable. And that takes us to our final point, good kings. You guys remember the birth of Prince George? He's the oldest child and son of Kate and William and the British royal family. He was born in, on uh, July 22nd, 2013, and it was a massive event, a media circus, royal baby this, royal baby that. You know, when he was born, they put an easel in the forecourt of Buckingham Palace. There was a 21-gun salute in capital cities of countries like Bermuda and New Zealand. The bells at Westminster Abbey were rung. Landmarks throughout the Commonwealth would decorate in blue to sign the birth of a boy. Wildest fanfare, a wildest fanfare for the birth of George. He hadn't done anything yet. What was the big deal? Well, as I'm sure you know, George isn't just some random baby. George is the son of William, who is the son of Charles, who is the son of the Queen, making him third in line of secession to the British throne. And that probably won't be for a long time. After all, his grandfather hasn't even taken the throne yet, let alone William, his father. But that doesn't matter. For all intents and purposes, George is the future king of England. That's what all the fanfare was for. The king has been born. Now, David, King David, did not quite get the fanfare that George did. In fact, David's birth wasn't really celebrated much at all, but David was anointed king well before he would take the throne. That's what our 1 Samuel 16 passage is about. Once God rejected Saul as king, the search for the next king began. God sent Samuel to a man named Jesse. You know, sometimes you'll hear Jesse mentioned in Christmas songs, like the rod of Jesse and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or other biblical passages and whatnot, because David came from Jesse's family, and Jesus came from David's family. And so Samuel goes to see this man, Jesse, because one of Jesse's sons will be the Lord's anointed, the next king. And Samuel goes through all the sons one by one. And he says, not you, next, not you, next, not you, next, seven times. None of Jesse's seven oldest sons are the one. And so Samuel's like, do you have any more sons, Jesse? And Jesse's like, oh yeah, I forgot about the youngest. He's out in the field keeping our sheep. And so they go and they get him. And when David is in front of Samuel, God says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. David is the Lord's anointed, the man after God's own heart, the next king of Israel. So Samuel anoints him king, and the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David. The spirit has since left Saul, but it's now rushed upon David. And this is the beginning of Saul's descent from the throne and David's ascent to it. He's not king yet, but he will be. Very next chapter in 1 Samuel. David, David gains national acclaim by killing Goliath. And I'm sure you more or less know the story, but the Philistine army has a giant warrior named Goliath who taunts not just Israel, but Israel's God. And Goliath proposes a one-on-one -on -one battle with Israel. You send your best warrior to fight me, winner take all. And uh, the entire Israelite army is too scared to do anything about it. No one wants to fight Goliath. And so David hears about this. And he's like, who is this Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? Who's going to fight him? Assuming that someone will answer, but no one does. And so David says, fine, I'll do it. I've killed lions and bears to protect the sheep I shepherd. I know how to use a slingshot. And beyond all that, the Lord, the living God is with me. This will be a piece of cake. 
<laughs> That's David's faith. The Lord is with me, and he has prepared me for such a moment as this. He's protected me before. He will protect me now. And so he goes up to the battle line to meet Goliath. They exchange some choice words, and then David slings a stone at Goliath's head, strikes him, knocks him out. And uh, David then runs up to him because he's not dead yet. David runs up to him, doesn't have a sword, improvises, grabs Goliath's sword, and cuts off his head. Piece of cake. That's David. That's the next king of Israel. Not king yet, but he's living up to his anointing. He's exactly who you want in a king. He's going to be a good king. His confidence is not in his size or abilities. His confidence is in the Lord. And when God's name is insulted, when God's people are threatened, David rises to the occasion to defeat their enemies. He does God's work in God's ways. He's the opposite of Saul, and the people love him. David gets back from the battle, and the people all throughout Israel dance and sing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And boy, does Saul hate that. Because Saul does not want victory for God's sake. He doesn't want victory for the sake of the people in his kingdom. Saul wants victory for his own sake. Because he can't get that, he can't celebrate David's victory either. He can only get angry and jealous when David succeeds. And so he begins to make life miserable for David, eventually to the point where David has to run for his life and live in the wilderness. And while Saul is pursuing him through the wilderness, David actually has several chances to kill Saul, but he doesn't. It would have made life so easy for him. The old bad king would be out, and the people would surely love for David to ascend to the throne now, but David won't do it. He says, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. So even though David is anointed king of Israel, so long as Saul lives and sits on the throne, David will bow his knee to him as king. He won't take matters into his own hands to get the bad king off the throne. He trusts God and his timing. Eventually, Saul does die on the battlefield, and David finally becomes king, and he's a good king. All the tribes of Israel are united under him. He goes to Jerusalem, conquers it, renames it Zion, makes it Israel's capital. And David's winning ways don't stop there. He wins battle after battle, conquers city after city, expands the kingdom of Israel. More and more of the land that God had already given to them is now under their control because of David. And then not just militarily, David is also a good king religiously. He makes Jerusalem the new home of the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's most holy presence. With the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, God, David goes to God and says, your presence, the Ark of the Covenant, should get a permanent home here. Can I build you a temple, Lord, here in Jerusalem, a home for you to live with us forever? I mean, David is just killing it. This is exactly the good king that Israel needs. And it's interesting. Obviously, Israel eventually does build that temple, but when David first proposes building the Lord a house, God actually pulls a fast one on him. God says to David, you don't need to build me a house right now, but how about I build you a house, David? The house of David. Not a physical temple, but a royal dynasty. And from your line, David, from your royal line, a future king will come who will build my temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. You see, even though Israel messed up by wanting a king like the nations, when they already had the Lord as king, God redeemed that mistake by aligning himself with David. Through David's line, through David's throne, God will still rule. Sure, there will be a human king in Israel, but they will be different 
than the kings of the other nations because they will be submitted to God's ultimate rule. God will still be the true king ruling through a human king. And the human king will lead the people not to serve himself, but to serve God. What better king to kick off this new royal partnership than David? What could go wrong? But what could go wrong is that David could abuse his power, force the wife of one of his soldiers to sleep with him, get her pregnant, and then kill the soldier when his attempt to cover it up fails. That's what could go wrong. You know, we talked about Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and David's terrible sin last Advent. You can read the story in 2 Samuel 11. And that chapter just hits you like a ton of bricks. How could you do that, David? Everything was going so great. You were the good king that we had hoped for. How could you do that to us, David? So how should we think about David now? Is he really a good king? Or is he just as bad as Saul? I'll say two things here. First, he's not as bad as Saul. Do you know why? Saul never repented of his sins against the Lord. He kept trying to self-justify until it was too late. But when David is confronted for the sin, he repents. He goes and writes Psalm 51, this absolutely beautiful prayer of confession and repentance. You know, I actually use parts of that prayer in our liturgy from time to time. David is better than Saul. We can still think of David as a good king because when he sins, he repents. There are truly bad kings and good kings. There are bad leaders and good leaders. But the second thing that David shows us is that there are no perfect kings. Good kings are still human kings. Good leaders are still human leaders, which means they're not perfect. They make mistakes, sometimes massive mistakes. They're finite, they're fallen, they falter, they fail sometimes. David was a good king, but he was still a human king. And the reason that 2 Samuel 11 hits us like a ton of bricks is because we want something better than that. We don't want just good, we want perfect. In some sense, we need perfect. That's why we're so drawn to leaders or public figures who seem like they always nail it. They, they always get it right. They're so good at what they do. They're perfect, it seems, until they show us they're not, and they fail. They have a moral failure. They let us down, and our hunt for the next perfect person follows. Aren't you tired of being disappointed time and time again by leaders you thought were perfect who show you that they're not? Aren't you ready to stop looking for that perfect leader? Well, at Advent and Christmas, part of what we're celebrating is that the wait for the perfect king is over. Christ the Lord has been born in Bethlehem, the city of David, not just a good king, the perfect king, the eternal king, the last king we'll ever need, a king who uses his power for good, a king who never gives in to temptation. He never needs to repent. Christ the King. That's what all these Christmas songs are about, right? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. Come and behold him, born the King of angels. 
and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom God established through David now has its rightful king on the throne, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the one who will rule and reign and defeat all our enemies forever, the opposite of a bad king and more than a good thing, good king, the perfect king. The king has been born. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for sending your son to be our king. We admit, Lord, that we often think we only need you as our crisis manager. But Father, you do not intend to be just a crisis manager. You intend to be our king. And so with your help, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would embrace more and more your kingship in our life, your rule and your reign in our life. We pray this, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Christ's name. Amen.